the incomparable. Number 513, May 2020. Welcome back, everybody, to The Incomparable. I am your host, Jason Snell. This episode is about a uh, 2019 film now available on video. People loved it, wondered why we didn't do an episode about it. I was like, well, we're going to wait until anybody can watch it by clicking a couple of buttons on a device. And uh, the movie is Knives Out, directed by Ryan Johnson. It is a uh, a murder mystery uh, with uh, with a great cast, and it's a lot of fun, and uh, everybody loved it, and uh, we're going to talk about it. So let me introduce my <laughs> panelists. Uh, what more needs to be said? It's a podcast. We're going to talk about this movie because we decided it was worth talking about. Brian Hamilton is here. Hi, Brian. Hi, Jason. I am undoubtedly, undubitably, and by all other accounts, unquestionably speaking in my natural accent. Mm-hmm. Okay, <laughs> sure. Uh, Dan Morin is also here. Hi, Dan. Uh, I see Kentucky Fried Brian has already spoken for uh hi okay you you could be you, you're our you're in massachusetts you're our our chris evans no no yeah <laughs> i can't say any of his lines on the podcast jason no eat bleep yeah thank you <laughs> <laughs> thank you helene wecker also joins us hello that's flam <laughs> very nice I'll, t- I'll take that uh, joke and i'll put it in my uh in my secret stash and first time on the the mothership podcast it's sage young Woo-hoo. sage welcome thank you i'm gonna be a great nana and sit and silently observe and then just blow everybody's stuff up at the end yeah that's, that's, that's how a, this works right it's a good role i like it great. sage are you back again already <laughs> <laughs> God, that line just kills every time. So, (laughs) every time. uh, People, first off, let me be clear about this, crystal clear. I know there are people who listen to The Incomparable before they watch the movie. Don't Don't do do it. Why? Why Why would you you for this one? For this episode, don't do it. (laughs) No. Please. One, you're monsters. (laughs) Monsters, I tell you. It's a three step plan. Watch the movie, Mm -hmm. listen to the podcast. Mm hmm. There's no step three. Just do those things without <laughs> reference okay. acknowledged. Let it wash over you. That's all you need. Okay. Because this is all gonna be spoilerific. I'm not gonna I'm not gonna do one of those things where we tiptoe around what happens in this movie. It's a mystery. There are twists and turns and it, it, just watch it. And now we're gonna talk about it. So run away if you haven't seen it. I'm telling you. <laughs> So I, where do we begin? This is um this is this is a it's a it's an old-fashioned murder mystery and I um honestly we went and saw this with my 15-year-old and I thought to myself when was the last time I took him to see something that was not a franchise or or maybe an animated film and I can't remember and the thing is, we walked out of it, and this is a, a sullen teenager. He turns to us and says, "Whoa, that was a really good movie." Yeah, and I thought, "Oh my god!" Right? Like, like, and and that that to me is the thing I wanted to mention first. Is like, I got kind of an old fashioned feeling of like, I went to the theater and saw a really good movie that was fun and had a lot of people in it that I like, but like, wasn't a franchise. It wasn't a continuation. I like those. I like the franchises and all of that, but like, it was just a good movie with. Like surprises and good performances and funny dialogue and uh, there there's something about this movie that I mean I know I'm sure they're they're already working on uh, another movie that uses some of those characters but like it was just it's just so, such a 
an old-fashioned almost pleasure to see a movie like this. Yeah, I was going to say, in a, in a year that contained both, you know, Avengers Endgame and Rise of Skywalker, this was a delight in that it was a movie that most people went into with no expectations. It had no weight hanging on it of any other movies it had to justify. Uh, and I like those movies, like, you know, from varying degrees. But this, to me, i I'm shocked as I am. This might have been my favorite movie of last year. And I part of that is I love murder mysteries, and especially because the homages that, that Ryan Johnson's playing with here are back to things like the classic Agatha Christie adaptations of like the late 70s. Um, and I grew up watching like the Sherlock Holmes, you know, series and the uh, Poirot and all that stuff. And like this, it just it captures so much of what's great about those and yet transports it into a, you know, wholly modern era with modern sensibilities as well. And, you know, especially for Johnson coming off of doing like The Last Jedi, like you could almost not find a movie that is more diametrically opposed to what that movie was. <laughs> and and it works. I came to Knives Out uh, more as a Ryan Johnson fan than a murder yeah. mystery fan. I know very little about murder mysteries in general, so I don't get a lot of the references. I'm sure a lot of y'all will have gotten from this movie, but this has Johnson's, you know, witty writing dna all over it and like you said this is such a breath of fresh air for a year full of movies that was entirely franchised because this movie stands on its own as a really incredible just piece of film that we just don't get like much like this uh, anymore yeah i feel like it was just so it's such a satisfying movie just from and i've seen it now i think four times and i will watch it many <laughs> more times but every time i watch it i just you know i walk away just feeling like full if that makes sense like it's like <laughs> mm, that was a good meal and it kind of has everything you need and it really stands up to being watched over and over again as a murder mystery it is so airtight um the script is so airtight everything that you know there are little moments that i did not notice until i saw it on my third and fourth time and what i really love about ryan as a director and a writer is that like he has that sort of, I mean, I grew up in the 90s when, you know, we're watching Dawson's Creek and Quentin Tarantino and there was, and Kevin Smith. <laughs> and there's this whole, there's this whole culture of being like the film fanboy and what exactly that means. And I think Ryan Johnson is such a sort of like wholesome version of that, <laughs> where like his love for stuff really comes through and he is able to, um, subvert uh tropes in a lot of ways but it's just sort of like out of the goodness of his heart like he loves things in a way where he's not trying to either tear them down or to like uh rip them up into pieces and then stitch it back together kind of mosaic style i ha saw this movie in the theater with my husband and i had been you know, it, it, I'd seen it sort of on the radar and I was perfectly content to wait until, you know, it came to, uh, you know, to see it in, in the house on streaming. And, you know, along with the 700 other movies, I'll say, oh, I'll see that when I'm stre you know, on streaming <laughs> and then I never do. Um, but what ended up happening was so many of the podcasts, like the pop culture podcasts that I listened to were like, okay, we're going to talk about this movie. You have to see it first. And I ended up with like this rack of episodes of, of things I couldn't listen to and references I wasn't getting on Twitter. And at some point I was like, okay, I have to actually go out and see this movie now. Um, because it's, you know, why is everyone talking about a sweater that Chris Evans is wearing? I need to <laughs> find, figure this out. 
And I managed to convince my husband uh, to come with me. He didn't want to see it because he I hadn't even seen a trailer. He'd seen a trailer and he was convinced that he was not going to be able to listen to Daniel Craig doing that accent for two hours. (laughs) Um, And I said, will you please come with me to the theater and watch this? And he basically gave in and was very glad afterwards that he had. Um, But, you know, we don't go to the movies very often unless it's, you know, appointment cinema, basically. And and this was, like you said before, sort of the exception to the rule. I want to add to that one thing, you know, commenting on, you know, Brian pointing out that Ryan Johnson, his best stuff in a lot of times is the stuff that he does that's kind of like a, I don't know, pastiche is maybe a little strong, but like an homage. Like I think of Brick, too, his Mm -hmm. first movie, which Mm -hmm. I saw in the theaters way back when. (laughs) And like the fact that it's such an homage to noir movies transposed into a high school setting like i think it really worked for him and obviously it it got him a lot more work um and i think some of those movies are more successful than even some of the you know either last jedi or i think a lot of people know him from looper which i think is a good movie but i don't think it's his best movie and i think you know knives out goes back to that realm of like the stuff that he really loves the movies that he really loved and as i think you know sage was saying too like he just loves movies right like he's a film nerd and it totally comes through here i mean not just from the the craft and the construction in the movie itself but like the storytelling and the references to other movies um all of that sort of just shows his love of this as a medium and it doesn't all come filtered through his ego the way Mm -hmm. that some other directors it's such a genuine love and he clearly thinks and is competent enough to add his own um, spin, his own take on something that's been done so many times and reference, you know, all the stuff that he loves without feeling like you you walk out of there going, wow, that was clearly a Ryan Johnson movie. Like, I don't know if I would have <laughs> pegged it as a Ryan Johnson movie if I didn't know that it was him. Um, I would have just thought, wow, that's incredibly smart. And who directed that? So, yeah. And like other directors, I could, you know, name um, <laughs> who have to, you know. We know you're it. talking about yeah. Quentin Tarantino. Yeah, it's okay. You know? okay, okay. I wasn't going to be rude, the but yeah, Quentin Tarantino. <laughs> Ryan Johnson directed a few episodes of Breaking Bad, too. And there's an interview with him afterwards really? where he said, listen, mm-hmm. yeah, he directed like three of the key episodes in the last two oh seasons. Um, there was an interview with him where he said, listen, I'm not making a 45 minute Ryan Johnson movie. I'm figuring out how to make the best episode of Breaking Bad I possibly can. And he's so, he can approach a project that way with so much less ego like Quentin Tarantino, or uh, mm-hmm. to, to name one. That's yeah. funny because I saw him, one of the times that I saw Knives Out was at the Museum of the Moving Image here in Queens. And um, he was there and did a little <gasps> interview afterwards. I know, gasp. We uh, I, I was hoping I would get to talk to him, but he had to run to the... Um, WGA's after because he was nominated. <laughs> but anyway, he had more important things to do than to meet me. <laughs> uh, but he actually just sort of in talking about crafting the script was like, you know, the great Vince Gilligan said, and I can't even remember exactly what he said, but he, but he was talking about like Vince Gilligan as this sort of great writer of, of tight plots and of um, giving you the information when you need it. And I thought that was like really cool because you wouldn't think Breaking Bad knives out but just in terms of the economy of storytelling he looked at him a lot and 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 learned from him which was very cool yeah watching it for the third time tonight i realized as we went through the movie how many little things are hinted at 
in mm-hmm. very small doses as the movie goes on until things completely turn their head and uh, you know things are slowly start to be revealed uh, as the movie goes on. And my favorite detail of all of this is the baseball from uh, yes. Death, because it's the biggest red herring ever you think oh that's gotta be a clue it's gotta be a clue it is never a clue it just shows no. up through the movie and gives characters some really wonderful moments of them picking up oh what am I gonna do with this and like I'm sure some of that may have been improv or like okay what would what would this character do with uh, Walter's uh, Thornby's uh, baseball and it, uh, it it made me really happy to be like okay this is not an angry red herring this is a clever little character bit for all these people mm-hmm. I think when you talk about his love of movies and of uh, of genres I, I'm thinking of that too like this it, and the, it's a smart script so it calls it out but like there's that line that like the guy lived in a clue board, right? <laughs> like this is a, mur- a parlor murder mystery, essentially in this haunted house kind of like, I mean, it is a murder mystery house. It is an Agatha Christie kind of house. And he's a, he's a, uh, a writer. Uh, the, 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 the victim Thromby is a writer of mysteries and thrillers. And so it's meta on a bunch of levels, but it's also just done with incredible love. And I I think, again, this is not a podcast about Quentin Tarantino, but I am going to say like (laughs) a lot of, of Tarantino's work seems to be about taking stuff he liked and then like tearing it apart and remixing it. And Knives Out feels to me like a very original and clever film made by somebody who loves the genre and wants to do a really good movie in the genre rather than sort of stake out a, a, his name as like, this is a totally new thing that's, you know, that's remixed from a whodunit. It's like, no, Ryan John- Johnson ultimately wants this to be a, a really good whodunit in that style, in an Agatha Christie kind of style. And it is. And and that's part of what I love about it is that it is done with great affection for all of the 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 watchwords, all of the standards, everything you expect, all the trappings of the genre. Yeah, I mean, it's a genre we also don't see very much anymore either. I mean, which kind of helps, I think, to a certain extent, because it feels I mean, obviously, I think on the small screen, it's very well represented, but I think on the big screen, and especially with the kind of, you know, blockbuster cast, I mean, you've got, there's the Brana take on Poirot in the last few years, but beyond that, I don't think it's something that really, they, has been well, you know, has been something that people have been crying out for, apparently, but it still can be done (laughs) well, right? Like, I, it's funny because uh, a couple, I think it was before I saw this, my wife and I watched with one of my cousin's daughters the the Murder on the Orient Express with um, Albert Finney from the 70s, which is definitely like a progenitor of this. And then just a couple months ago, our local movie theater, before we could still go to movie theaters, um, had uh, uh, Death on the Nile with Peter Ustinov, which is sort of the follow up to that. And like watching both of those, it is really clear to see that DNA but like you said, it's not just because he's like, oh, I'm going to take that and smash it into a bunch of other stuff and, and make something brand new and trailblazing. No, he he executes extremely well on that formula. And it just, yeah, I, it just works. With such incredible precision, too. The care that he took with each shot and to make sure that there was 
not just like a weight of logic, but also of emotion and the relationships between the characters. Um, in every, like every scene feels necessary. Every character feels necessary. Like Sage said, the whole thing is airtight. It's just a beautiful package with a bow, like from one end to the other. And I'm going to have a really hard time for the rest of this podcast saying anything that isn't just, I love this movie and I (laughs) wish I could write something half as clever as this. You're going to have a few writers on this podcast telling you like, it's really hard to write (laughs) a story. Oh my God. (laughs) Not just like, you know, there's so many stories where, yeah, I was just listening to uh, the comparable episode about Apollo 13 and how, you know, talking about how, Jason, you were talking about how movies like that and um, like Hunt for Red October and, uh, you know, other sort of movies where you have to deliver bits of information in a particular order to the audience about subjects that may not be in the audience's purview um, and how hard it is to do that Um and still, and not just devolve into like exposition. And he had to do that about all of the characters and their relationship to each other. But <laughs> and there's also, a lot of characters. And there's a lot of characters. But he also had to make it clear who knew what. And that's the really hard part is to give it to the audience in the right order so that you can see who knows what and the audience is in on it insofar as the main character that you're following at that point is into it um, is is like aware of what's going on. And my God, I can't. It's just such I, I get like this this tension headache just thinking about <laughs> trying to order the scenes and and make it, um, you know, it all understandable and hats off, man. Hats out. Hats off. his solutions to things are so kind of simple and beautiful in that way like you know that uh jamie lee curtis's character like linda can't sleep she'll wake up when there's the slightest sound so there you go that's how you know who's up who's getting up and down the stairs and that marta will throw up if she tries to lie that's how we know she's always telling the truth like he puts in these aspects where it's like oh solve that problem you know (laughs) rather than sort of just hemming and hawing over like how you're going to get something done he just puts the solutions right into the script and you're so in for the ride that it's like yeah sure she throws up when she tries to lie why not why not (laughs) like that's a thing yeah, that's totally a thing. Yeah, totally happens. It's so, so <laughs> yeah, common. That happens to all of us at some point. He also drops stuff in, in places early on that, that explain things later that maybe then don't need to be spun out. Like, I was thinking as I watched this time, like, towards the end, as they start explaining stuff, it's like, how did ransom know all this stuff about like the drugs and which drugs to steal and switch oh that's right like three scenes earlier when he's talking to marta Uh he explains he was harlan's research assistant for a summer and he did a whole bunch of research on all this stuff and it's like it doesn't need to be brought up again it doesn't need to be dropped again it's just a detail that ends up paying off much much later and there's a whole bunch of stuff like that where it's just little things planted here and there that then sort of germinate and come out at like the moments when you need them. Okay, let's take a little break from talking about Knives Out to tell you about our sponsor. This episode is brought to you by Masterclass. Masterclass is an app. It's available on your phone and uh, it's also a website. You can get it on your web browser. It's on your Apple TV if you've got one of those. And it lets you learn from the very best people 
that gives you exclusive access to online classes taught by the masters of their craft. Think about uh, filmmaking from uh, Martin Scorsese. Yeah. Aaron Sorkin can talk about screenwriting. Neil Gaiman can talk about storytelling. 75 different instructors across tons of categories. There's something for everyone. So I've talked a lot about Chris Hadfield's astronaut class, which is pretty great. How about Margaret Atwood deconstructing The Handmaid's Tale and talking to you about how she does her world building and how she creates a plausible, speculative world for her book. That's a whole class is Margaret Atwood taking apart The Handmaid's Tale. It's pretty amazing. There's also, since we're talking about mysteries this week, thriller writers and mystery writers talking about their storytelling processes. If you're a writer or an avid reader listening to these craftspeople talk about how they apply their craft and the work they do to build the thing that you read, uh, Masterclass will give it to you. It's pretty amazing. So you can buy an annual Masterclass all-access pass for yourself. And here's a great deal. When you do that, you get a free pass to share with a friend. So, you know, go in on it. Have these with them, I guess. Go to masterclass.com slash incomparable and get started. Limited time offer. Great deal. Masterclass.com slash incomparable. Neil Gaiman, Martin Scorsese, Margaret Atwood, Chris Hadfield. Masterclass.com slash incomparable will get you there. You'll get 15% off Masterclass at masterclass.com slash incomparable. Thank you to Masterclass for supporting the incomparable. When you talk about the exposition in this movie, um, I think one of the things that I liked about it is it is a modern film in a way that some of the classic murder mysteries maybe wouldn't have done it. There's a lot of cutting back and forth to events that happened before. It struck me watching older movies that that's one of the things that really you can tell if something has been made since. We'll bring back Tarantino since Pulp Fiction, essentially. It's not maybe not the originator, but like a popularizer of telling stories out of sequence and having lots of flashbacks and quick cuts and back and forth and back and forth. And, and, and things made 40, 50 years ago didn't do that so much. Um, but it plays fair. Tony Collette comes up to the door because she heard the bang on the, uh, on the floor and she comes upstairs and you see Marta in the background with her, her, uh, back turned and Christopher Plummer has that conversation with her and then gets her out of there and she leaves. And we see that same scene later, but it's the same scene. That's not entirely true. There are a couple of flashbacks that are different, including there's one very early on where they flash back to Harlan having the cake put in front of him. Mm -hmm. And it's flashback from two different people and the people around him are different both times. So every once in a while. But you're supposed to get that. Like you're supposed to clock that because it is. Yes. It, you're supposed to understand that it is everybody's it's, impression right. that they were the most important person in his life. And it's everyone, every one of his children thinking that they're the central person. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. In yeah, exactly. Life. So it's slightly, but you're right. When it comes to the stuff about the murder, the, the facts that's absolutely about the crime. true. Absolutely. Like, that, like everything you see is like all because there are lots of conversations that happen behind closed doors or off what whatever, right? And it's like it's not. It doesn't. It never felt like it was cheating me. No, exactly. Right, right? Mm -hmm. which is important. The one example of that I would call out is uh, the flashback from "You did this" to "Hugh did this." They absolutely put more of a yes on the. But that's like filtered through her understanding. I think that's also interesting about the some of this is that it sometimes flashes back to things. But the context isn't apparent. And then later on, you will see the same scene, but the context has changed. So even though it's showing yeah. you the same thing. Mm -hmm. So, for example, That's there's the a best. scene where they early on they talk about 
oh, you know, Marta, we consider her part of the family. Yep. And like Don mm-hmm. Johnson's beckoning her over. Right. And then later on, you get the same oh, scene. Man. But it turns out oh. it's really kind of this awful scene where he's like, oh, come here. You're a good immigrant, and then aren't he gives you? And then he her hands her a plate. plate and it, yeah, oh, exactly. Oh, so, but like the same shot, but it, mm-hmm. it has a very different meaning because now you understand everything that's going on around it. And that... Again, doesn't change the facts of the matter, but it definitely changes how the characters perceive it and how we perceive the characters. And it's how they see themselves. They exactly. really see themselves as being like her benefactor. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, that's that's one of the things um, that I wanted to m- mention. So I'll mention it now, which is one of the themes of this is definitely with, with Marta at the center of this story It is definitely the way that somebody she's an immigrant she's a worker she's the help at one point referred to as that Mm -hmm. by a cop actually um and and how they treat her and you see that she is a member of the family when she's inconsequential and the moment that she's a threat she's a monster and they demonize her and they although they say nice things to her they they're like there's that repeated line of like i got outvoted where everybody says i wish you could be Mm -hmm. there but i got outvoted and then of course the best one is every time somebody comments in the family comments about what country she's she's from from, there's a different country they mention (laughs) oh my god which is and and in fact i'll go so far and you people can can disagree with me all you like but i'm just gonna throw it out there I, i i think the best picture winner from 2019, the Oscar, was Parasite. And I find, I think that Knives Out and Parasite are a great double feature because I think they're about many of the same themes in that it is about class and about income inequality and how how the, the rich people treat the workers. And and I, I just I didn't really clock to it until I watched Parasite. And I said, you know, I feel like I just saw a movie. About, oh, right. <laughs> Knives Out is kind of about this. And it's two of my maybe my two favorite movies of 2019. And they both are fun, entertaining, interesting, wild movies. But they're also both about, I would say, the same thing on one level. Oh, your registered nurse accidentally overdosed your grandfather on medicine? Oh, such a shame. Let me refer you to another person that I know personally. Man, if I've seen that trip once, I've seen it a million times. <laughs> I love, too, the way, like, the the scene where Marta is alone with Harlan, she just, she behaves so differently to the rest of the family because she understands that they do not care about her. So she sort of, like, you know, Meg gives her a hug and she's like, oh, it's okay, it's okay, like, whatever. And then when she's with Harlan, she's, like, sassy and fun and like laid back and you know gives him crap and whatever because she un- because he is her friend and he sees her as a human being and maybe she doesn't know how she doesn't understand yet because she has no reason to like how vicious the rest of the family is but she knows instinctively that they are not her friends <laughs> and right. she and she acts accordingly so i love that moment like i love when she's when they get upstairs and it's sort of like the artifice of martha martha just like marta just drops off when she's with her her the buddy, Martifice. the Martifus, yeah, exactly. <laughs> she's with her pal. They're just friends, and and like the, it, it actually makes because you could have that moment of like, well, the old guy and the young uh, nurse, and he's leaving her his estate, and and they say that right. It's like, oh, they well, you, say you know, it. You boinking my father, exactly. They say <laughs> boinking, and, but, but we <laughs> we see it, and we see it that like it, it's the truth is in the other line, which is. 
in the end, he needed a friend, right? Like that, she right. started as his nurse and ended up just being his friend. And they were friends, and we get to see that. And that's that. I think that powers so much of the movie to have seen those quiet, that quiet moment with them after the party where they're upstairs together and they're just friends and they're playing go and they're giving and taking. And she's she's not being submissive to him like she's giving as good as she gets and she beats him at go and like they have a good genuine friendly nice relationship and it is in stark contrast to her relationship with the family i i'm not sure she doesn't know as much because they he it does seem like she's very he's told her a lot that's and true. he's told her a lot of yeah, stuff yeah. about the family right like yeah. i think i think so I think so. I really appreciate how the script allows. I mean, what, the one thing we hear over and over, um, especially from um, Benoit Blanc, is what a kind person Marta is. And she is. She's an incredibly kind person, but she is also very, very smart. And yeah. I love how the script allows her to be both things. Usually it's either you are a kind person and you are going to get steamrolled or railroaded or you're going to have the wool pulled over your eyes and you're not going to realize it until the third act or you are a smart person and you are going to be devious and you're going to beat them at their own game and she does neither there there's the line at the end um that benoit Blanc says that uh you played your own game you didn't play theirs and it's true it's it's like she is the same way that um she beats uh, Harlan at go by doing her own thing and he's responding to her and she's just like I'm making pretty patterns and it's she's a fascinating character in that way and I I feel like I, she only improves in in watching again the mystery breaks and the villain is foiled by the fact that she's a decent person who decides to call for help to, to save yep. the poor housekeeper who yeah. is not safe. Like she's not. Otherwise. She's not only kind, <laughs> which is a big deal, but she's also extremely competent. You know yeah. that goes with that, right? Like she's good at her job. The whole thing hinges yeah. on the fact that she is so good at her job. She doesn't kill him. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and and like that to me was also refreshing too because it's about solving this murder is more about like solving the fact that it's not a crime, right? Like you know that's what's complex about this is like it's not. In the end, it really isn't who done it, right? Like it's who didn't do it. Yeah, <laughs> that's actually important. Which, who well, but who didn't do it is a way harder thing to say. And we only get her happy for that one scene after the party where they play go. Mm. All the entire rest of the movie, she's racked with anxiety. She's near puking. She's uh, freaking out about all the stuff happening around her. And I love that the first big twist comes after we finally get this breath of fresh air that we don't know is the last time we see her happy and anxiety free in the movie. Uh, right before uh, the first major twist happens. And I love that, you know, rewatching it, it's a little oasis of we actually get to spend time with these two characters who really, really care about each other. I know we were saying before that um, this could not be a more different movie than Last Jedi, but I think in some cases it is very similar. And there's a great tweet. There's a great tweet that just has a side by side comparison of Marta standing on the balcony watching Ransom get arrested and then the end of Last Jedi where Ray is about to close the door on Kylo Ren after he's like, please. And it's just, and they're like, and the tweet, I think just said that big Ryan Johnson energy. And it's so just, it's, it's, it's women who have come out on top because they will not stoop to the level 
of what's in front of them. And that's like how she wins. It's why she wins. And mm-hmm. it's just not in her nature to do that anyway. But I just love that juxtaposition. <laughs> it's so it's a beautiful thing. One of the things I realized in watching it again is that so I love that last shot in the movie where she's there with the my house, my mm-hmm. rules mug, which is great because of the, the meaning of the fact that it is her house, right? Like, <laughs> But that is the mug that is being delivered to Harlan at the beginning when he's found dead is the same mug. It's his. So there really is in the first one of the first shots of the movie in the last or the first shot of the movie in the last shot of the movie is the ownership is tied through that mug, which I really love. Um, I also want to mention um, Meg uh, because that that she got brought up a couple of times, and I think that's an interesting character because she is more understanding of I would I would argue even a little bit more legitimately understanding and connecting with Marta, even though she betrays her. Mm, I didn't think so. I I think so. Here's how I read her, and yeah, I, I'd love to hear your read on it. I'd like to I, I like to think that she feels they have a connection. Because they are younger and there's the rest of the family and she feels like like she's cool and that she can hang out with Marta and it goes it goes just that far. And then what this story does is rip all the 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 artifice of that away and the fact that they're they're not connected at all. But I I, I kind of like that, that that was it, it's not because the older people, the, the 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 children of Harlan, of course, are going to be kind of set off for Marta. But Meg is set up as being having a little bit of a connection. You know, she's the cool one because she's younger and she's she relates to the to the nurse and to the housekeeper and all of that. But it just makes the betrayal, I think, much more effective that when push comes to shove, no, no, she's not. She's not a friend. I have a theory about this, and I wonder if people are more because Meg, to me, is like the most odious person in the movie. (laughs) Really? And I wonder if it's like, you know, whoever you are maybe like more close to demographically, because I (laughs) felt like I could see right through her in terms of like, and she's like, oh, the help, please. And it's like, you're just showing off. And and part of her storyline and of... um, uh, Tony Collette's character storyline is that like she just wants to stay in school and be an academic and take all these courses that are not going to get her anywhere in life and you know uh, <laughs> the Nazi child calls her a social justice warrior and <laughs> and that and that that's like her identity that she sees herself as being very woke and very cool. Yeah, she's but a she, white, rich white liberal is her and insufferable college student. Insufferable, <laughs> and she does not relate to Marta on any real level like you get yeah. and and the and whatever information she gets from her which is that her mother is undocumented is all of the information that she really has of her family and she uses it against her the second she has chance. right because so, for all of her pretension it's 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 basically when a push comes to shove she's not going to be that person oh she's, absolutely not yeah. but I think you see that from the beginning where it's just like she is just play acting because she's like oh I'm her age like I'm her peer <laughs> we're cool the rest of the family sucks and it's but no she 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 has been bred by that <laughs> world and that's and and she can't escape that any more than any of the other kids could 
I also think the inclusion of the alt-right Nazi character, which is so <laughs> yeah. funny to me, so funny. Uh, shows uh, Meg's kind of knives-outedness before she ultimately betrays uh, Marta because, you know, we see them argue. We see, oh, she's just like them, but they're fighting on a different level than everyone else. They're like, oh, I hate your ideology. I hate this. Like, they're both very politically active and on Twitter and things. And we see that side of her even before I don't think it's so much of a twist that uh, she betrays Marta. I think it's more of a like, oh, this is a continuation of her character because we've seen how bad she can be uh, in fighting with her uh, Nazi cousin. It turns out that your upbringing is worse than whatever political ideology you expose in this case or that you're you're all awful, basically. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Everybody go see Parasite. Um, <laughs> just saying, just saying it's, all, it's all connected, everybody. Now, I, you know, one of the other things that I really like, because this movie is about it is about class, um, is I love the constant repetition of the stories of the siblings about how they're all self-made. Mm-hmm. Yep. <laughs> and, yep. and how, and the best part, how they give so much crap to Walt, Michael Shannon, the youngest of the siblings, because he's not self-made. He's just running daddy's publishing company. And what we find out is, you know, Walt, the, look, none of them are gems, but Walt at least seems to be wanting to do things with the, the publishing company that Harlan isn't interested in. He doesn't want to license it. He doesn't want to do TV shows or movies or whatever. He's not interested. But to, to single him out when, in fact, all of the other children their self-made businesses are all bankrolled by daddy and apparently don't really make money so it's just it's just a wonderful moment as that as that whole thing unfolds that these people who are just incredibly proud of how they 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 uh did their own thing and of course they are all uh you know they all were born on third base and thought they had a triple every single one of them do you think that any of them are I mean, they're obviously all terrible, but did you find any of them like a little bit like the tiniest bit sympathetic? I'm just curious about that. Walt, to me, was the most sympathetic of yeah. the, the children just because, well, I mean, I, the movie didn't, I'm, I'm sure it didn't mean to imply this, but if Harlan's become like such a massive bestseller with his own publishing, basically vanity press and no adaptations whatsoever, either TV or film or anything like that, then that house is doing a heck of a lot of work. And Walt is yeah. a pretty is pretty good at what he does. Um, but, you know, he's... I, I, it doesn't really... They don't really talk much about Linda's real estate business. Yeah. Um, except the, for the fact that, that it's basically, like you said, bankrolled with like a million dollar loan. Um, and Flam is just sort of hilarious. <laughs> oh, man. Flam. Um, it's a lifestyle. It's a lifestyle. <laughs> the I wanted Collette to know is, more is about Flam. A, 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 a very broad character. Um, I think Tony Collette is an incredibly talented actress. And I think one of her most ta- uh, incredible talents is that she can make me just despise her the moment she appears on screen. And I, I'm serious. <laughs> like, like, she's so good at weird facial expressions yes. and weird behavior and very strange little mannerisms that like the moment she walks on, I'm like, I cannot stand her. And it's <laughs> it's brilliant. But like, I can't even take it. And my kids are like, oh, so she's Gwyneth Paltrow. And I'm like, yeah. yes, uh, yes, yeah, she yep. is. <laughs> I guess Ryan Johnson's never going to work with Gwyneth Paltrow. <laughs> <laughs> I think Jamie Lee Curtis's character, first off, because he knows who he's casting here, there's some 
as unlikable as she is, there's it's still Jamie Lee Curtis. And there's also the sympathy, the fact that her husband has betrayed her, the fact that she's got her little secret codes that she still does with his dad or with her dad, where he's got he's writing on like lemon juice or whatever. And the, like it's like it's like a Hardy Boys level secret code <laughs> thing. But she gets it. And Don Johnson doesn't get it. Like, I feel like she's more I wouldn't say likable, but at least I have some sort of empathy for her. Because you're with Harlan a little bit. Like, that's how I felt. We also get a moment with her alone, which mm. most of the other characters we don't get. We get that moment where she's looking over all the old letters before Walt comes in. Right. And so we get to see sort of a genuine sadness from mm-hmm. her that we don't really see from a lot of the other characters. Yeah, I had sympathy, like pre, you know, Will reading When You Hate Everyone. Uh, <laughs> I had sympathy for... Um, it's a perfectly routine thing. It's actually really quite boring. It's, uh, you know, it's, it's not that interesting. Don't worry. <laughs> it's community <laughs> theater uh, presentation of a tax return. Oh, tax return such a great line. So good. <laughs> uh, so I had sympathy for Jamie Lee Curtis and uh, Michael Shannon in that they were both... Um, Jamie Lee Curtis for you know going through the thing with her husband for sure, but then of course Walt going through uh, you know not being able to having to butt heads with his father in the way that he was at the party. I think one of the things about Walt that is so interesting is that I, I feel I feel bad for him in certain points, but then you meet his wife and she is just <laughs> such a nightmare that you're like oh, okay, and also he is raising a child who is a literal Nazi and they don't seem to have that much of a problem with it. No, <laughs> I don't know what any of that means. He also tries, yeah. He also tries to blackmail Marta uh, to her face later yes. on, and yeah. like that scene, which is generally, I, I actually thought that scene. First of all, menacing. that scene is Very. super well shot, right? Like mm-hmm. with the cane yeah. tapping on the ground, mm-hmm. and like this idea that like this guy, okay, maybe he uses a cane, but he is still kind of scary and still He's kind way of bigger threatening. Than her. Yeah, I know. There's a lot going on there, and I, I think it's, I yeah, I don't know. I, I think that's what makes this whole movie delightful is there are points at which you have sympathy for many of them and yet they're all bad <laughs> also that scene with walt and marta is so great because it's it's the rich educated person and i mean she's a nurse so she is ex- educated but there's this there's a very strong class dynamic happening there mm-hmm. and he comes up with his whole intimidation speech yeah. <laughs> and she so just good. looks at him like oh so you can save me with your money well that's great because I it's have all your money, <laughs> yeah. so I can save myself. And, he, and and the look on his face, and it's like, yeah, you didn't really think that through. It's Damn so it. great, right? It's like, it's so, so it's so great. It's like, I, but that was my evil speech. It's like, no, no, it didn't. You did not think this through. It's her first big moment of confidence in the movie, too, even though yeah. she says yeah. it through tears and like, uh, uh, it's it's my money, I guess, bye. And it's where she eventually grows into the person who can lie for 30 seconds without vomiting yeah. at the end. It's like the yeah. first time that she seriously considers taking the money is when he's telling her what they would do with their money mm-hmm. for her. Yeah, that's true. Mm-hmm. I, I like. I actually think the most sympathetic member of the family is Ransom in the middle third of the movie. <laughs> yes. Yeah. <laughs> Which is again a, a nice up. bit of storytelling judo here where yeah. it makes you feel like you like him. He's on the outs with the family and she's now on the outs with the family and he rescues her and it's like, let's go off. And you're right, Dan, it is it is cinematic judo because you are off balance. You think it's happening this way and then you find out that he's actually the worst of them and this is all a setup. 
but you but in that moment you're like yeah the black sheep of course he's gonna get it and these and people you are, awful. are primed again knowing his cast you are primed to want to trust chris evans i know right <laughs> well and they never tell you all the stuff that he's done they go on and on about you know that he's the black sheep and after everything you've said and i don't know you do is like you, you see him hurling a few expletives at them but they richly deserve it at that point. Right. So mm-hmm. they they do a, he, Johnson does a very good job of setting him up as the bad guy and making him look like he's the good guy in just because everyone else is so bad too. Yeah. So I, yeah. That this this is the trick of this entire movie is that he continuously changes your perspective not only about the characters but about what the movie's even about because you start off the first half hour 45 minute being like it's a murder mystery let's find out who does it and then there's the moment where blanc is interrogating marta and he does the coin flip and you get the entire flashback and the backstory of essentially how harlan died and at that point it turns into for the next half an hour 45 minutes to this is a movie where we know who did it, but the detective doesn't know, and it's all Marta trying to avoid getting caught. Yeah, it's Columbo. Which is not a whodunit it's anymore. Columbo. It's now a no, story where Columbo. we're rooting. Right, but we're also it's rooting true. for Marta, right? Like, yes. we like her, and we want her. It's so like when she walks over the footprints, or she scrambles the videotape, and we're like, oh, she's one step ahead, and they're all bumbling, <laughs> stupid detectives. It's like, wow, this is not who I thought I would be sympathizing with when I went into this movie or even like half an hour ago. And I think that's Johnson's great strength. It's like he can really turn this whole thing on a dime. By the way, shout out to M.M. at Walsh, who's in that one scene that involves uh, a lot of TRS-80 so monitors good. and VC- oh, yes. top-loading VCRs, which is just like, wow, amazing. Like, oh, yes, we're very high-tech here. I have a VCR. I'm like, great, <laughs> great. This is going to be good. Mm. There are I- stacks of boxes on the shelves behind him that have, that like, from a Tandy 1000. <laughs> and yep. I, I want to know where they got those boxes. That's, that's where the T- all those TRS-80 monitors are from. Like, those are, the, the, they're using as video screens, but those are... <laughs> Like yeah, those are the those are the Radio Shack computer monitors that they sold in the eighties. I don't know why. I don't know, but it's it's uh, yeah. Seeing that scene again, I'm like, this is so this is so strange, <laughs> so strange. The scene where uh, Christopher Plummer dies and we get the flashback is still hard for me to watch because yeah. I remember the uh. first time I watched the movie. And I felt so destabilized by the end of that scene where I realized, wait, we're a half hour into this Who Done It movie, and we know Who yep. Done It. What is the rest of this movie going to be? I have no mm-hmm. idea. And then the twist of the uh, the um, the will, and then you get Chris Evans helping her out, trying to navigate this whole thing, and it kept it keeps you on your toes the whole time. And I love that the flashback with Harlan's death. Um, it feels it, there's a parallel to the very end scene. It feels written very the same way where um, uh, Daniel Craig is explaining the whole plot and everything. You get the same kind of pitter patter fact a second kind of uh, kind of cadence that you get of Harlan going through. Okay, you can't get the uh, ambulance. You can't do this. I have to slit my throat, and you have to go downstairs and then walk downstairs. And you get the same kind of uh, it, it's it plays very similarly to Daniel Craig. Uh, relaying the whole donut theory <laughs> oh the donut theory <laughs> donut. god okay. bless the donut christopher hole. Plummer's face as he decides to die uh, just as he's realizing as he goes first she's tell she's like freaking out and he's like taking notes because this is fascinating and i'm gonna use this in a future book <laughs> yeah and then as it becomes more and more clear like that she doesn't have the thing and the the basically the antidote 
and he you just see this sadness come over him and just this weariness and this and and then it's replaced by resolve mm-hmm. and it go and he just goes from there and it's and meanwhile she's just freaking out and having a panic attack and and trying to follow everything that he's saying and the first time i saw this i was I actually, I think, enjoyed it more the second time because I could take in everything that was happening without wondering. Part of me was like, this is such a smart movie. Is she actually behind all of it after all? You know, is this not faked? Is Was Marta really being diabolical here? Is she as good as she looks? Or is this all going to be undercut when we, you know, in some scene, see everything that was happening from a different perspective? And we realize through the larger context that maybe she and, and uh, Harling were working together. I had like when I remember sitting in the theater wondering, is the last scene of this movie going to be Christopher Plummer like – stepping out of the 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 forest <laughs> getting in her car as they drive away because they both you know decided to just you know the two of them were were the only decent people they knew and they were just going to live without the rest of the family or something um so seeing it this yeah i saw it the second time last night and it was i was able to relax and just take it in for what it was and take it at face value and it was so much more, that that whole scene was just so heartbreaking i want to ask the panel we all thought at some point in the movie harlan was still alive right i'm not oh, alone yeah. in that yep. no okay, i never did no. i've totally missed that i never thought that no because he i mean his dead body is found and stuff i figured that that was the that was the the definitive thing that we had seen i did think however when this was all happening and she switched the vials i did think if she's so good at her job how did she switch the vials i did think that right yeah which turns out to be exactly exactly right and i felt very vindicated by that (laughs) (laughs) because you're a good nurse but that's that's it right like she's so good as a person and as a nurse that's what's critical in the end i mean this is the truth of this movie right in the end the murder plot fails because they everybody underestimates marta everyone underestimates her yeah that's it also i felt like if this had been made by another filmmaker that middle third of the movie that we were talking about where marta and ransom go off together would have had some sexual slash romantic aspect and it did not and god bless it for that like because that would have been super weird (laughs) it would have been really like even if you had even hinted that either one of them was attracted to each other it would have been so messed up by the time you found out what was going on but that would not have stopped (laughs) some filmmakers from doing that and i just really appreciated that that was not played that way besides which everybody knows that marta's true love is trooper wagner oh, wait a second uh, wait i ship it trooper um, wagner let's, 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 i oh my god let's wait, talk about the, the i'm gonna write fan fiction about this our our uh, our, our uh, investigators because we haven't talked about them yet so there's Ugh. there's trooper wagner he's a really big fan He's read oh, all the books. I, sorry, the scene where him. there, where where Elliot is trying to stop Blanc, and and he's just shh, shh like he's listening <laughs> to Blanc give the answer. Is he's just, like, this oh, is God, exciting. Me up. Yeah, and we get Lakeith Stanfield who is a, so Trooper Wagner. I mean, he's a state trooper. Then then there's Lakeith Stanfield who is the actual detective. Um, he's also he, a state trooper uh, technically, but yes. Well, yeah, but he's a, he he's the he's a detective. He, he's yeah. a, a police detective, not detective just a, lieutenant. 
Yes, exactly. He's so weird. He's not, I get the, I get the impression Trooper Wagner. You know, most of the time is pulling people over for speeding. This is the <laughs> coolest thing that's ever going to happen to him. But Lakeith Stanfield, like he's he's the detective who is working the case, and uh, and he uh, is this is his case, and he's working it. But uh, it looks like a suicide, except for the other insertion, who when we meet him is sitting in the background, occasionally hitting a key on a piano. <laughs> Which is such a strange way. And it finally is like, who is that? Right? Like, finally, the characters are like asking what we're asking, which is like, who is that back there? I mean, we know it's Daniel Craig, but who is it back there? And mentioning the trailer earlier. Yes, I saw that trailer, too. And and thought, what is this? Is this like a weird episode of The Love Boat or something? What is it? It's like all these stars. And Daniel Craig has a weird accent. What's going on? And I thought, well, this is not going to be much of a movie. And um. And I'm just going to go say it because we need to talk about Daniel Craig. I love everything about Daniel Craig and his performance and yes. his yep. accent and yes. the fact that he is a there's a donut inside the hole and inside that there's another donut and you know and this is what's going to happen is Ryan Johnson is writing another movie with Benoit Blanc at the center of it uh, because uh, he is a he turns out he is a classic mystery detective he really is I love the suggestion also that somebody said they should just cast all the same actors but in just different roles like totally different movie I was like yeah I'd be here for that that would be great it's American Horror Story you you spend this whole movie trying to figure out if he's a genius or an idiot right like because there's a whole bunch of it where it's like oh he seems very smart and then there's like the scene where he's sitting in the car outside the singing follies (laughs) so funny and you're like is he and then at the end you like where it seems like maybe he's been superfluous to this entire process and he points out like oh i saw the blood on your shoe at the very beginning and i knew you had something to do with this and i it kind of goes back to his whole theory which he talks about uh with gravity's rainbow which is like i just you know look at where the lob is going and assume i'll stand there and wait for the truth to fall into my lap which it basically does and yes nobody has read gravity's god rainbow. the Come line on. is I so good the way through gravity's rainbow Come and he's on. like i haven't either uh, I, I, nobody I rest, your honor <laughs> there you can see in the scene where they first meet where, where marta and and blanc first meet you can see the moment where he sees the blood on her shoe yes the, oh man i missed yes that. you can i didn't oh, see that until great. the third time my, my husband yelled, we were watching it last night, and he said, he just saw the blood! And I'm like, what? And I made him rewind it. <laughs> I didn't catch that. That's so Me amazing. neither. I gotta go back and look now. He barely reacts, too. Like, it's like, it's so in character. Like, he just sort of, like, like nods his head twice and doesn't even indicate to her that he has noticed anything. It's, it's really it's like beautiful. A, it's beautifully yeah, it's done. It's like a pause between words. Just for, It's mm-hmm. like, he stretches out a syllable just, like, half a beat too long. And then looks up at her face. My favorite fictional detective of all time is Lord Peter Whimsey uh, by Dorothy Sayers. And Benoit Blanc is almost kind of a, you know, southern version of Whimsy, which is Whimsy is a guy who puts on this like he's seems from all outward appearances to be this total fop. Right. Like he seems like he's kind of an idiot. He's this intellectual. He's always spinning these weird quoting things and spinning these weird stories. But in fact, he is very, very perceptive and very, very smart. And I think Blanc has a lot of that going on. And I love uh, personally, my favorite bit about him is we see a little later on, there's the New Yorker profile of him, which a couple of the characters, and my favorite was, I saw the link on Twitter 
to your New Yorker profile, <laughs> which I think is Tony Collette's line. Um, but yeah, this guy, like he's your classic, he's your classic whodunit detective. And I absolutely agree with you, Jason. I think everything about Daniel Craig's performance, and I saw this in pretty close conjunction to seeing um, Logan Lucky, another movie in oh, which Daniel so Craig puts on a very bizarre accent and is a very <laughs> weird character. And holy crap, he's so good at all this. <laughs> I love yep. Daniel Craig as an actor, and it makes me so happy that he's doing weird roles like this. Yes. God. As a character actor. And th- this character, too, is like he is a media... The, the way that the way that people read him is, you know, I read that article about you in The New Yorker. He's a media creation, um, and he's also got his southern accent, and and so they make jokes about that. It's, what, it's KFC, CSI, right? <laughs> yeah. like, oh, my God. Um, so good. But, but, he, but again, even with Benoit Blanc, you need to underestimate him at your peril right like that is that is the beauty of it but he's just so again he's quirky and he's got his you know he's got his kind of glee in solving a crime and lakeith stanfield a lot of the time is like can we dial this back can we take this seriously (laughs) can i get on with my job i know that the famous detective is here but i really just want to close the case and that's a nice dynamic as well um but like he is he, you know, he doesn't dominate the movie, but he's at the center of it. And I, I just find it incredibly delightful every time we come back to him, which is what you want, I think, with a great movie detective or a detective in general in a detective story is like they need to be. He's got kind of a joie de vivre about him. Um, he he but he also sees everything. It's great. Like, it's just such a great performance. And again, I saw that trailer and I'm like, oh, boy. <laughs> uh, but no, I don't I, I, I recant everything. It's great. It's just great. And that accent serves such a purpose because these are like New England liberal elite who think that this is some country bumpkin Uh that they that he's just not going to be a factor in their lives. And it also makes you realize that like where what he's doing in the beginning when they're all being interrogated is all part of it. Like he if he wanted to be sitting on that couch next to the detective, he would be sitting on the couch next to the detective. But he wants them to be curious about him and to uh underestimate him and that's that's because he also knows exactly who these people are. It's, <laughs> like from it's the shtick. get-go. Yeah. It's, it's shtick, shtick. Yeah. yeah. It's all part of it. But it's it's it, to me the 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 part the part that kind of defines the line that kind of defines the whole movie to me is when you know she says something like he's he calls her a lousy murderer and she's like well you're not such a great detective yeah. and he says maybe maybe we deserve each other it's yeah. just like yeah, kind of such exchange. a beautiful moment because he isn't like I. The kind of detective who's like, I just got to get my arrest. I just got to get my collar. He cares about the truth in that if if Marta is responsible for this, but she didn't do this with any malice and it was an accident and whatever, he has no he has no interest in taking somebody down who doesn't deserve to be taken down. He just wants to know what the heck happened. And that and, and that is and he knows enough to bring her in as an ally early on when he suspects that she has something to do with it so that he can look out for her. Like that is what he's trying to find out the truth, but he's also, I think trying to protect her as soon as he sees the blood on her shoe, because he knows that she is a good person and he just wants to keep an eye on her. It's such a, a, a great relationship between the two of them too. Like she's trying to get away from him and he's sort of like, I'm trying to help you, ma'am. 
Be my Stop sidekick. running away. Yeah, Be you're my, my Watson. Watson. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Watson. Yeah, Blanc doesn't have any sense of urgency about this crime. He knows that Harlan is dead and he doesn't think it's a suicide. And anyone else, like the other detective, would say, oh, it's a suicide, open and shut. But someone else with Benoit's, uh, you know, sense of there's something more here without the sense of urgency or, or with a sense of urgency rather would probably bring everyone into interrogation room and, you know, grill them for hours until he got all the information out of everyone. And it wouldn't be as satisfying or fun to watch, but because Blanc has this, like this lack of urgency and real excitement about letting the truth fall in his lap rather than like, I don't know, being as aggressive as everything. Like even in the car chase scene, he's not like vroom, vroom, got to get this car. He like pulls up next to him and says, Hey, pick up your phone, pick up your phone, please. You should talk. It's so funny. Great shot. Well, that's I think that's because he's already clocked, right? That, that she didn't do it. And, right. and that despite what's going on, like there's more, to, there's more to this puzzle. And I think he knows that from the drop because his first clue is that the money in the envelope that's sent to him is the sign that something weird is going on, right? right. Like, that's a clue, because that shouldn't happen. Because that means somebody is trying to force him into the investigation, and he probably is thinking, why would they do that? And he's already, when he enters it, and also the way I read him sitting in the background and all of that is that he's so savvy that he wants to see these people in their natural environment with the stakes low so he can see how they Mm -hmm. all behave. Instead of Mm -hmm. taking them out of there, he wants to just kind of bask in the ridiculousness of this family and this house and, and go from there, which is because he's brilliant. There's a great moment there at the beginning where there's like the, um, I think, I can't remember if it's him or Elliot who's trying to uh, bait Linda about the family. And she's like, I'm not an idiot. You think I'll fall? And then it's just the immediate smash cut to Don Johnson just feeling like <laughs> spilling the beans on everything. <laughs> and it's just, again, yeah, like letting them kind of hang themselves. I do want to say for people who are listening and don't know me, it was probably most of you, I am a freelance uh, entertainment writer and i interviewed the set decorator for this movie for house beautiful which was really fun yeah yeah house beautiful was like hey can you talk to somebody for night i was like yeah 100 so anyway so i talked to the set decorator which is very interesting and very fun i think that was such a cool job so this guy like his name is david schlesinger and he um, everything that's in the house, everything that's in the house, he went and bought these things. And so what he told me is that all of that, we- every single weird thing in that mansion relates back to a title of a Harlan Thromby book. <sighs> and that the books, the there was a list of books that Ryan Johnson gave to the set decorator to be like, Here, here's what he wrote. And that was a combination of titles that he had come up with. And then I guess they had sort of like a competition in the uh, production office where everybody got to submit titles of mystery stories, which is a really fun thing to just like come up with the name of a mystery uh, of a mystery novel where you don't have to have the plot. Like you could just kind of go nuts. And so everything that was in that house ties back to one of those books. And he said too, that, you can't see them all on screen, but they created covers for every single one of the novels oh that Harlan oh wrote <laughs> in canon, and they are in 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 the house, probably in the study. Well, there, um, are, all, there are books everywhere. In yeah. There's one shot where you see all the spines yeah. Of, yeah. of like a row of them, but just the spines, and I would kill to see those covers. 
but I just yeah. thought that was so fun. And the, and he said that like he tried to buy stuff like in the Boston area, and you know they rent things from antique dealers and yada yada. But like all of it is to, so to to talk. You know we're talking about how tight the script is and how, but it really was from from top to bottom. Uh, the attention that was paid to the details in this film. Uh, that's why it is as great as it is. And that house is like a character in itself. It's so yeah. cool. The clue board, yes. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> There's a lot going it's on so there. Cool. And I, I loved, first of all, I don't know if they, they, they've sort of kept under wraps where it is. It's somewhere in Massachusetts, but like they've, I gather, because it's a private property like they haven't actually disclosed where it is although i desperately want to know because i i've actually been to some of the other filming locations there like i i saw they were filming and i well, live listener, not far listener from there. nate in framingham reports that it's a few miles from where he saw oh. the movie so okay mm-hmm. all right well i know where that is that's not far from where i grew up and uh i've been the, the i saw they were filming in a town not far and i was driving around one day and i was like oh, i'll stop and check out the filming location and i was like it's just an empty storefront it was the laundromat and i was like did not put that together until i saw the movie oh, at the end i was like oh that makes sense because it's just an abandoned storefront um but i want to add there's also a great video over at vanity fair where ryan johnson breaks down a scene from fairly early on and it's just a fascinating look i mean he spends like 20 minutes talking about like things like all right eye lines this is how we line things up this is how we did lighting this is like the sort of the composition the stuff and he just drops little tidbits here and there about it and it's all really interesting and again as we sort of said at the beginning it just shows you how much he seems to care about every little detail of what is going on uh and that's the same sort of thing you can see in i think several people commented like just the the shot composition the way the camera moves in a bunch of different scenes um there's a funny bit at one point where marta goes out after learning that she's uh inheriting and it mm-hmm. goes to a handheld shot and it gets all oh, shaky yes. cam mm. and he comments like yeah somebody broke the steady cam so then and he's like but it just it looks good yeah it's amazing because because it's the moment the, mo- the movie becomes unglued right like yes, everything yeah. is super exactly. smooth and that shot starts out you know, Very as smooth. a lockdown like shot, in. and then it falls apart. And that was one of the moments I leaned forward and I was like, oh, look what he did there. That's so smart. Or also, it's broken. <laughs> Good kineticism <laughs> with like the dolly shots and the tracking shots in various places where they're just like, uh, you know, there's a bit at the end with Blanc and he's standing next to that huge thing of knives and there's like a pan oh. across it up to him. It's uh, just, it's such that, a dynamic and great looking movie, just beautifully shot. That sh- the, the place with all the knives, like that's what the, it's almost like the Game of Thrones throne kind of thing. Yeah, but that's right. also a case where nobody is quite dead center of it until mm-hmm. Blanc, Blanc is there yeah. at the mm-hmm. end, right? Everybody's off a little bit and then he sits down there and it's like, the king has arrived. Right? Like, <laughs> <laughs> um, I wanted to mention the house. My my favorite touch about the house, and this becomes part of the plot, is the the creaky stairs and things. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I grew up in a hundred and twenty year old farmhouse, and let me tell you, I that took me back because you you know everything that's happening in that house based on the creaks and the sounds of it. So that really, I loved that. I thought that was a really great touch. Although I didn't ever, we didn't have like a secret window or anything <laughs> trick, like trick that or a, or a or a you know a, an attic that's behind a a panel that looks like a wall that i would have i would have killed for that it's such a great moment though when they dispel like all of your assumptions about like oh well this house must have been in their family for generations oh, and he's like you bought this 
from a Pakistani real, real estate company in the 80s like it's so beautifully done at the end of the movie because yeah uh, it's our ancestral genius. home um our and ancestral then the other thing I, I wanted to mention is how silly this movie is if you if you are a monster and you've come this far and you haven't seen it and sounds like oh well this is a you know a, it's got a murder mystery and there, uh, all these other things like there is literally a scene where marta finds the um kind of damning evidence that she climbed up the trellis <laughs> the and, and she chucks it and you know and there's a dog and what do you think is going to happen and the movie has the restraint to wait quite a while before the dog finally brings the stick back because of course the dog's going to bring the stick back and it ruins everything it does ruin everything and but it's just it's so funny the payoff scene where Ransom grabs the knife and tries to stab her. And it's been set up because yep. Christopher Plummer says early in the movie that Ransom couldn't tell a stage prop from a real knife. But everybody yes. else doesn't yes. know that. So they treat it seriously. And it's yes. in slow motion. And everyone's running and trying to stop her. And he stabs her. And you think for that split second, like, oh, my God, he just stabbed her. And then there's like the beat. And then he pulls it out. And then he tries to stab her again. <laughs> and it's that <laughs> creaky sound. Just has a, I can't say it, but just has a like crap. <laughs> you know? yeah, we, I, I don't think we've so actually well. specifically praised her. So I'm going to do it. Ana de Armas. Yeah. Amazing. For all of the stars that are around this movie, it's a great performance. It's she's she's so likable. It's well written. It's a great character, and she does a great job with it. She is you are rooting for her, even when you think she killed him by accident. You are rooting for her to get get away with it. She brings decency. She brings you know emotion when she gets upset because she's really upset. She loved that old guy and feels super guilty about causing his death. All of it's in there, and she more than holds her own against this mm -hmm. enormous cast of famous star people and everybody is having a lot of fun and i think like they sort of right. give her the the range to like be the star of this film while everybody else just kind of is like this is it it must have felt like a vacation for some people and i know okay. they're working but like think. can you imagine like just some those characters are so broad and so fun especially the 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 kids i mean like uh marta and benoit blanc and maybe even Chris Evans, although he's not in the movie for a long time either. Like most of the parts aren't huge, right? Yeah. So that so you could see how it was a week maybe, or a week or two where Don Johnson has to be there. And yeah, I would think with all of these people that it would it must have been as as much as any working environment could be, uh, kind of a blast to just kind of go in there <laughs> with this kind of a script and do this. In that in that scene dissection, Ryan Johnson does mention that between takes, all the cast would go to the basement of the house because it's a real house, and there was like a rec room down there basically, and they would just hang out and oh, tell man. you know tell uh, Hollywood stories and all this uh, stuff, and you're like, I want to uh, be a fly on that wall. Yeah. Oh, this sounds amazing. What is Frank Oz doing in this movie? I don't by the know, way. but it's great. <laughs> it's an, I mean, it's just it's it's like this adorable little extra, like, and you get Frank Oz. Alan, but... I love you, but you're useless. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and and Kate Callan, who plays Nana, oh. is uh, who I knew from the mom on uh, Lois and Clark. 
He right. was, she was Clark Kent's mom yes. on Lois uh-huh. and Clark in the 90s. And I took me when I saw her credited, I was like, holy crap. Like, I did not recognize her at all. But she turns in a great. Yeah, she's not very 102 in real life. No. She's only in, no, her, she's I think she's in her early 80s. But 80s, she's playing yeah. 102 or whatever and it, it just, is. What a little role that's also hilarious. She has like what, like three or four scenes, but like, and it's some of it's just reactions. Like the part where, where <laughs> was Walt trying to get her to eat? And someone's like, she ate the whole salmon she ate the spread whole already. Salmon. <laughs> <laughs> it's like a satisfied look on her face. Tonight was the first time I saw Knives Out without a crowd in a theater. I watched it on my home TV. And I still remember every single moment in this movie where we got like giant belly laughs from the entire. <laughs> audience at like a uh no or a oh crap like small things that are timed so perfectly that you get the biggest laughs out of any movie in you know a little single uh reaction like that yeah i was so happy to have seen this in the theater because it it, it did get a good reaction and it was fun to be in that completely well i don't i don't see a lot of movies in movie theaters well none of us do now but like in 2019 i generally in the before time didn't but i was so happy that we made the effort for this one um and and, and i want to thank all of my friends who saw it and said it's great and you should go see it in the theater and don't learn anything about it before you go because i went in knowing nothing i didn't even remember that trailer as i watched the movie i was like oh this is the movie where where there's the weird accent with james bond right and i was so happy i did because it was such a great experience to see it with other people and the audience you know sometimes you go and there's five people in the theater but this was a decent audience and they were responsive and it was just such a blast to have everybody gasping and applauding and cheering and stuff during the movie it's a very rare thing so i i treasure that memory too i saw it in the theater in here in new york and then i took my parents to see it when i was home for thanksgiving in uh, south carolina where they're retired and let me tell you that there was the reaction was still great. Like people were still very into it in South Carolina, but the <laughs> the line that really played differently was in New York. The line that killed was immigrants. We get the job done. <laughs> Hamilton, right? Saw the public. So great. Saw it at the public. Yeah. Kills in New York. Mm-hmm. In South Carolina, they were like, Meh. they did not know how pretentious I saw it at the public is. <sighs> Don Johnson's delivery of that line it's is also so just, great. It's just great. And also Trooper Wagner is like also a big Hamilton fan. <laughs> yes, of course he is. Of course. He loves everything. He loves everything. My favorite little bit that I caught this time that I missed before is the scene where after the car chase, he's uh, cuffing Ransom. He says, like, thank you. And Elliot goes, you don't need to thank him about yeah. putting him into the car. <laughs> Oh God! Why did they make like a dozen more of these? Yeah, yeah. so okay, so that that I I think it's worth saying that right. Like again, to come back to my kind of opening statement, walking out of the theater, and all of us are thinking, I wish there were more movies like this, right? Like, and I know that saying yes, that was a great movie. They should make more great movies. Yes, they should. <laughs> but like, also like. It, it's got stars in it, yes, but it's it's smart, it's fun, it doesn't require any previous knowledge, it still feels like a movie, like like an event, um, and you walk out of it and you feel good because you had a, it was like a fun ride. It didn't, and I love big explosion superhero movies and sci-fi movies and stuff, but it was also fun to have something that was just set in the present day, and it's got very snappy dialogue, and it's playing with kind of some other genres, and, and it, it, a little bit like when uh, we did our episode about sneak 
Seekers. I had that same feeling, mm-hmm. which is this feels like a genre that used to be huge and now we almost never see. And this movie reminds me, I kind of love these movies. I kind of, I mean, parlor-ish mysteries. Like, I know that they feel old-fashioned, but Ryan Johnson just showed you they're not. And they could, so more, please, more like this, please, is what I'm saying. Agreed. So good. All right. Well, um, this was a lot of fun to revisit Knives Out with this group. Uh, it's such a good movie. And all you monsters out there, now you can go watch it and you know everything that happened and you'll just appreciate it even more when you see uh, that scene where Benoit Blanc sees the blood on on Marta's shoe. You're going to be like, aha, I knew that was coming because of the podcast. Uh, let me thank my guests one last time before we sign off. Brian Hamilton, thank you so much for being here. Ooh, ooh, the podcast is ending. This is just like the ending of book three of A Murder for All Seasons. <laughs> Dan Morin, thank you. That was the dumbest car chase of all time. <laughs> okay, baby driver. <laughs> okay. Yeah, nice idea. Oh, boy. <laughs> so good. Uh, Helene Wecker, thank you. It's for the best chase. <laughs> and Sage Young, thank you so much. Uh, I, uh, I like donuts. That's all I'm going to say. And donut holes. <laughs> I think you'll find this whole podcast is just a donut inside the hole of another donut. Thanks to everybody out there for listening. Did you guess who the murderer was? It was Dan. Uh, We'll see you (laughs) next time. (laughs) 